This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and this is season two of our exploration into soil health and the collaboration that's happening in North Dakota and stretching beyond. Have you ever taken a soil science course, like in college? Well, if you have, and that course was at NDSU in the past 15 years, you were probably taught by today's guest, Dr. Jay Goose. If you haven't, you're in luck because this podcast and especially this episode uh, is going to leave you with a better understanding of soil science. Also in particular, I enjoyed this conversation because we got into some interesting topics like peak phosphorus precision agriculture and identifying what Dr. Goose called snake oil products. Dr. Goose is a professor in the Department of Soil Science at North Dakota State University. He told me he is the longest serving professor in that department, arriving in 1980 when Jimmy Carter was still president. He took over the Introduction to Soil Science course in 2005 and has taught thousands of students during his teaching career. Dr. Goose grew up in western Iowa on a crops and cattle farm. He received his PhD from Colorado State University. He starts our conversation here by talking about his approach to teaching that Introduction to Soil Science course. I was fortunate enough to have a background not only in the agronomy part of soil science, but I also was a soil mapper. And so I, you know, I understand all about the horizons and the layers of the soil. And that's a very important, that's the first third of the class, is just how soils are put together. So I thought that I had a unique set of um, skills for teaching that class. Is there one point in the class where you often will see the light bulb come on uh, or, or any sort of concept that tends to really get people to understand and appreciate soil science? You know, it's funny. It, it, it happens um, to different students in different times. You know, like I had this one student who really loved the pedology. In fact, she's going to make a career in pedology. You know, how the horizons are stacked together, you know, how to identify and um, the properties of soil. Um, and then, then again, I remember one time in laboratory, we had a lab where we were looking at nodulation of soybeans. And, you know, we had different treatments and the students were picking off and counting and weighing the nodules. And, you know, one student had shown no interest in the class at all. He's looking at these nodules and he's saying, this is really interesting. And his lab partner is picking him off with a look on her face to say, kill me now, this is boring. So, <laughs> so the light goes off for different students on different subjects. Understood. Just from a general uh, overview, what do you hope a student leaves that course thinking about soil science? Well, you know, I hope they, um, they understand just the big picture. You know, how the layers of the soil influence its productivity, you know, that they have big concepts of acidity and alkalinity, concepts of wilting point and field capacity, just the big overview of the main properties of soil. And my colleagues say that when my students take the next levels of classes, that they do well. So I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. How did you initially become committed to the idea of becoming a soil scientist? Yes, I started off in the, in the studying ag engineering but I, um, I really, really liked my intro introduction to soil science class. I guess I liked it because I like all branches of science. And in agriculture, in soils or agronomy, 
you are integrating all, all levels of science. I mean, I liked chemistry, I liked biology, I liked microbiology, uh, I, liked, I liked all these disciplines, and that all comes together in the soil. So um, it just appealed to my broad interest in soils and, and in, in sciences in general. Now, you've been uh, with, with university, you said, since the Carter administration. Uh, what sticks out as you think back to the now almost 40 years? What stands out as far as soil science as a field and how it gets applied on the farm as having changed in that time period? Well, here, here's a quiz that I, I often give to people. In, in 1980, the number one crop in North Dakota, of course, was wheat. But the stumper is, what was the number two crop? Some people will say, oh, it was barley. Or some people will say, oh, it was sunflowers. No, it was cultivated summer fallow. That was the number two crop. Three million acres of land just tilled black to collect water and nitrates for another wheat crop. And so um, talk about bad for soil health. And that was causing all sorts of problems. Because if, you, if you're only cropping every other year, in some years, there is a wetting front go past the root zone. And out west, sometimes it's shallow to shale or shallow to a coal seam. And then the water comes out the side of the hill as a saline seep. And that was my first assignment, was to come up with nutrient management guidelines for farmers wanting to get away from summer fallow in the western part of the state. Of course, you know, nobody, with the advent of no-till and these advanced water conservation methods, nobody summer fallows like that anymore. And in fact, if, um, if you see statistics on summer fallow, it's normally preventive planting because it was too wet. And the, and the land is just fallowed because it could never get into plant. But um, yeah, that's probably one of the biggest changes. Boy, when I was hired, there was no such thing as an air seeder. There were really no, no-till was, you know, what's that? So all of that has, has changed. And so soil management is much more advanced now. The equipment is much more advanced. The farmers can till into much heavier stubble loads than ever before. And all of this has been very good for soil conservation and good for the soil. I remember back in the day, our sugar beet farmers in the Red River Valley, they would make that soil like a tabletop for planting beets the next year. And then we would have what are called snurt storms, where you'd have wind erosion with a blizzard and the ditches would fill up with snurt. Now, normally you think of wind erosion as being a sand-related problem. But you'd go into a ditch and you'd grab a handful of snurt and um, you'd find out that it was a clay. The reason it was doing it is they were so pulverizing the soil that the soil was eroding as sand-sized aggregates. So even though it was a clay, it was behaving like a sand. Well, nobody, nobody farms like that anymore. You know, so as far as erosion, soil management, we've come a long ways. Yeah. What was the thought process back at that time as far as needing to, to cultivate that and not just letting it go fallow? That, uh, well, see, there was two, summer fallow was accomplished for um, two different ways. In the western part of the state, you know, they said, well, we're, we're conserving water and we're conserving nitrates because it's so dry. And, and those were some dry years. I mean, the late 70s and early 80s, um, those were some pretty dry years. There was also summer fallow in the Red River Valley because farmers would plant sugar beets on summer fallow. You know, they were paid for tons. And, um, and now, and, and the sugar content would be lower because summer fallowed fields have high nitrates. But again, not anymore. Land's too valuable, rents are too high, etc. cetera. Um, and then concurrent with that was the development of uh, Frout West, no-till, and better seeding equipment and leaving your stubble over winter and all of this one-pass seeding, you know, has really caught on out West. 
this conversation around soil health has been uh, much more prevalent in, in recent years. What do you think of that? And what do you think is kind of causing the more recent interest? Well, I can't speak for the whole nation, but one reason, one reason it's, um, it came to the fore and the reason that people like Dr. Wick were, were hired was that, you know, we've, we've been in a wet cycle since about 1992 and saline areas are growing and wet spots are growing and you know that so that just put the whole concept of you know what's what are we doing to our soil and how can we get beyond these things so i know it's 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 not going to be that way for the whole nation but it was originally the whole concept of our soil health team was originally driven by increased salinization and problems like that but of course now it's expanded farmers are um, farmers are experimenting with cover crops and all of that that's fine for for wet soils, but what about the what about out west? You know, water is a scarce commodity out west, and so what's the role of a cover crop out by Williston, North Dakota? You know, I think the jury's still out on that. Now, if climate change is upon us and we're in a wetter a wetter regime for a while anyway, sure, experiment with it. What other big questions? you think are, are kind of needing to be answered about soil health and practical soil science on the farm? Well, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, I've, I've been here 40 years. And what are we going to be talking about 40 years from now? And one thing that I am really concerned about, again, say 40 years from now, is phosphorus. We'll never run out of nitrogen fertilizer. It comes from N2 in the air and so on. But phosphorus is a um, natural resource, and rock phosphate is not found in very many places around the world. If you want to do a web search, look up peak phosphorus. Peak theory was first done with peak oil, which basically said, peak theory says that once you've mined out half of something in the world, the rest of human history is fighting over the next half. When are we going to reach peak phosphorus? And the problem is, phosphorus management in the United States is a line when it should be a circle. Let Let me explain. You can mine rock phosphate in Florida or Morocco. You can make phosphorus fertilizer out of it. You can put it on a farm in Iowa or Illinois or Indiana to grow corn and soybeans. So the phosphorus is now in the corn and the soybeans. The corn and the soybeans go to a pig farm in North Carolina, and there it sits. You know, because those soils in those areas are already so charged with phosphorus, I'm sure 40 years from now, we'll be raising livestock differently so as to conserve the phosphorus. Because I don't think we want unit trains of um, pig manure coming back to Iowa. <laughs> so I just think 40 years from now, we're going to be talking a lot more about phosphorus. Everyone's thinking about nitrogen now because of, you know, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and, and nitrates in, um, in rivers and streams. But phosphorus is going to be moving up on people's radar over the next few decades. To my own contribution to this, a very small contribution, I had a graduate student look at 80 wheat varieties to try and identify the ones that would need the least phosphorus. And so I've given the seed of that to the DNA people with the USDA. And so we're trying to find, at least for spring wheat, the genes for phosphorus efficiency in wheat, just a small component of it. I mean, in North Dakota, of course, um, we're not, not, coming compared to other states, we're not as big into livestock. Uh, For us, we put our phosphorus on our wheat and soybeans and um, it goes on unit trains and goes wherever, you know, so it's a line there too. So um, phosphorus is going to be a big subject, maybe not 
maybe not soon, but within the next 40 years. Yeah. I mean, you could make the argument that all these, all the grain exports, you know, part of what we're exporting is our phosphorus. Yes, that's right. And we are still net mining our soils with respect to nutrients in North Dakota. Potassium is a big one. So the biggest change in cropping since I've been here has been soybean production. In 1980, soybeans were grown by a few farmers in Richland County, but now I think it's surpassed wheat, at least um, it has at least one year, or at least is equal to spring wheat as far as acreage goes. And a heavy soybean crop will remove about the same amount of potassium as uh, four wheat crops. Now, when Roundup Ready came in, the farmers really, in a way, abused it because farmers were growing soybeans after soybeans after soybeans. And so we have developed potassium deficiencies in the state where we've never had them before. In other words, we're still mining our soils for nutrients. That's another change for the future. We're going to see more and more potassium deficiencies as well. Wow. And is potassium, is that mined like phosphorus is? Yes, but um, it's mined in salt mines, mostly in Saskatchewan. The outlook for potassium supplies, though, is better than for phosphorus as far as reserves that are reserves that have been identified. Yeah, I'm much more concerned about, you know, 50 years from now, phosphorus than I am potassium. Yeah. Do you think or, or does the literature indicate that we have reached peak phosphorus? That's, that's a debate. Some say yes, some say no. The problem with, phosph- with rock phosphate is a lot of the rock phosphate deposits are fossil-type deposits. Like, let's say you had a shallow basin in a former sea that collected the detritus of dead fish and other sea creatures, and then that got covered up and compressed. And those sorts of, those sorts of deposits are, um, are pretty rare, and they vary a lot in quality. Um, some rock phosphates in the world also contain heavy metals like cadmium, and others contain a lot of iron and are hard to purify. So the high-quality stuff is, is, is going to run out. And then we're just going to have to go to lower and lower quality uh, materials. And again, that has problems of sometimes heavy metals or whatever, too. You mentioned kind of the need for phosphorus for soybeans being significantly more than wheat. Potassium. It's potassium. Or potassium, I'm sorry. But soybeans, but phosphorus is an enigma with respect to phosphorus as well. Soybeans become very mycorrhizal, and soybeans are very good at mining phosphorus. In fact, um, soybeans are much less responsive to phosphorus fertilization than, say, corn or wheat or sugar beets. But yet the seed is a very rich seed. And so, yes, the soybean crop does remove more phosphorus than a wheat crop as well. But yet, you know, unless the farmer has a very long-term view of soil management, what I'm saying is with the increase of soybean acres, are we are now in a net mining situation with respect to phosphorus too. Because, um, again, a farmer could say, well, if they're not going to respond that much, why should I put on some phosphorus fertilizer? But then again, they're going to be mining that out. And so, you know, over the long term on phosphorus, you got to put on at least what you're hauling away. What about soil organic matter as far as how much of a difference does the soil organic matter make in the amount of phosphorus or potassium that plant can utilize? Potassium, K+, does not form any covalent bonds. It's all ionic bonding. And so... um, there is no organic compound that contains potassium, you know, unless it's just a K plus attached to a carboxyl group electrostatically. Now, phosphorus, in the topsoil, about half of the phosphorus is in organic forms and, and about half is in inorganic forms. So phosphorus is one of those um, nutrients that both the, the inorganic and the organic chemistry are important. 
um, there is cycling of between the organic and the inorganic pools. And so sometimes you can have a low soil test and get no response to phosphorus. Well, it was probably because there was some release from the organic. So yes, I mean, maintaining good organic matter is going to improve the nutrition for nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Those are the three plant macronutrients that are largely found in organic forms. I've asked a lot about kind of what has changed in the 40 years. What, what hasn't changed? Farmers are still bombarded with snake oil products. I think that, <laughs> that's one thing that hasn't changed. But boy, a lot, a lot has changed. Our farmers, we really have a bright, a bright cadre of farmers out there. And, um, you know, we have, they either go to NDSU or they go to one of our tech schools. And our farmers are readers, and they read a lot, and they learn a lot. And that hasn't changed. That's been the way it's been since I've been here, is that our farmers are just very technically astute, and they ask good questions. What are the biggest questions you get from farmers? Yeah, well, you know, I get questions about um, students will send me pictures, you know, because they all have smartphones now. They'll send me pictures of deficiency symptoms, and they want to know what, what, what the pro- certain problems are. Or a very common call I'll get is... You know, someone will pitch something to them, and it doesn't sound right. And so um, you know, they'll call, you know, this, this product doesn't sound right. And then the, another type of call I get, um, I call it the priestly function. Um, it's planting time. The farmer's going to do something, but he wants a voice on high to tell him that it's okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Validation. Validation, yeah. yeah. I call that the priestly function. Yeah. That, um, so we get all sorts of questions. Um, I remember, I remember my, my first call from a farmer back in 1980. It was a farmer up by the Canadian border. And back then there were huge flax stacks. You know, flax straw has to set for a while if you're gonna make cigarette papers out of it. So there were these huge flax stacks and uh, flax straw stacks. And uh, this guy called me because one had caught fire and burned to the ground. I mean, this is 10 times bigger than any, at least 10 times bigger than any haystack you've ever seen. And he said, I had a flax stack burned down and nothing grow, nothing's growing there. And I said, yeah, there's, there's calcium and magnesium and potassium and, and, and it's probably salinized the land. But, but besides um, um, pasteurizing it, I said, how long ago did it burn down? He said, 10 years. And I said, you'd think something would be growing by now. And he said, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Wow. <laughs> So I was just, I still remember my first call as a professor at NDSU. Yeah, that was a weird one. Yeah. What'd you find out from it? We didn't really have an answer. I told him to get a soil test and just see if it was still salty. Yeah. 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 You had mentioned, you know, farmers are getting bombarded with a lot of of snake oil. You know, what are you seeing out there? You don't have to obviously mention any specific companies or products, but that you're highly skeptical of. Well, okay. The last farm bill included language about <clears throat> something called biostimulants. Maybe you've heard of biostimulants. And um, I'm not saying that they're all crazy, but I, I see a lot of the old products that have been you know, discounted by research for years, and they're now being rebranded as biostimulants. So I'm just thinking that uh, it's going to be the same old, same old, just that it's going to be under a name that has some sort of government sanction now. And, you know, I have to tell farmers, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And, um, but I remain, I remain to be, um, I remain open. If someone can show me that something works, fine. Tell us more about your research focus. 
The last 20 years, I'm most, most well known for my work on iron deficiency chlorosis of soybeans, and it is a bad problem here in the Red River Valley. I was fortunate enough to go to Colorado State because um, the premier micronutrient chemist in the United States was Dr. Lindsay, who developed the DTPA soil test that everybody uses. And um, so he was one of my professors. And so, um, so you know, I was, I was fortunate to learn micronutrient chemistry from one of the best. So that, that's helped me out too. Tell us more about that problem that, that that solves. Iron deficiency chlorosis is a problem of alkaline soils. Uh, and we have alkaline soils here when you have poor drainage. If you have a water table that wicks up to the surface in the spring, you're going to have lime in the topsoil and maybe some salinity. And those are the factors that really drive the chlorosis. Um, iron is sparingly soluble anyway, but you get around pH 8, and, and the soybeans just have a hard time extracting the iron from the soil. But it's, it's worse than most nutrient deficiencies because it, it's, not, it's not only just the inability to take up iron, um, it has to do with the inability to properly translocate the iron within the plant. So there's almost no deficiency um, like iron deficiency. Uh, we, um, over the years, I screened thousands of varieties for resistance to um, chlorosis. And then I gave the seed to the DNA people, and um, they did their association mapping. I don't even know how to spell DNA, okay? So um, <laughs> anyway, um, but they, they, they found that there's about seven genes involved with um, chlorosis resistance, and each one adds a little more resistance. And it, they, can, they have to do with the uptake, but also the translocation of iron. So it's a very complicated, um, complicated problem. To me, it's more complicated than any other nutrient deficiency. And what can be done? Oh, um, the, 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 what, what, I'm trying to tell, what I'm telling farmers now is that the control measures for chlorosis are stackable. In other words, you get so far with a resistant variety and you can stack on that um, an iron fertilizer, but they're pretty expensive, so you can't afford too much of that. And um, you can stack that on wider rows and um, heavier seeding rates. You know, all of these control measures stack on each other. And under the worst conditions, sometimes you do have to stack at least three control measures, a resistant variety, some, uh, uh, some iron fertilizer with the seed at planting, and wider rows. When you have wider rows, there's more seeds per inch, and um, that helps dry out the soil and use up nitrates right where the, where the seed is. Yeah, excess nitrates is also a driving factor. What area or areas of soil science do you see changing the field the most in the, in the coming decade? Well, um, you know, the site-specific um, things, site-specific has been very interesting. In fact, I wrote an article, I wrote part of an article in 1987 I thought I'd read you part of that. Yeah, that'd be great. Soil management in the 1990s was the name of the article. I wrote, most fields are composed of many soils with divergent properties, but at the present time are managed as homogeneous units. This means that parts of the field receives excessive inputs of seed, fertilizer, and pesticide, while other parts of the field receive inadequate amounts. Adjusting inputs based on differential soil properties will result in re reduced production costs, higher crop quality, higher yields, and less risk of envi environmental contamination. So, you know, I saw in uh, 1987, I thought that site-specific was going to be, um, was uh, precision ag was going to be a big deal. Unfortunately, if I can grind an ax a little bit, education about precision ag 
is almost entirely about gizmos and very little connection with what causes the variation in the field. Does the sunlight vary across the field? Not too much. Does the rainfall vary across the field? Maybe a little. No, it's the soil that varies across the field. And to truly understand precision agriculture and site-specific management, it does take a comprehensive knowledge of soils as well. If somebody is really interested in precision agriculture, but they have got caught up in the gizmos, where do you send them? You know, what might help with that? What really needs to be developed at, the, at our universities are specific soils courses related to precision ag and soil variability. You know, you get some of that in a soil genesis and morphology class, um, but students just need to know, you know, how soils are put together and why that spot is different than this spot. And if, you know, the more you can understand about soil variability and the layers and the structuring of the soil, you know, the better you're going to do with precision ag. What goes into that? If I have a 160-acre field and I know that obviously the soils are going to vary within that field, what factors go into that? Because I think this is interesting. It's sort of a principled view of precision agriculture. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you can start with your yield maps for one thing. Farmers use yield maps to create zones and so on. But that should be combined with some ground truth about um, what soils are you putting into these management zones. I mean, I think management zones is um, phenomenal. You know, sampling and fertilizing, you know, taking a field and dividing it into four zones or something like that can be a, a great help. But, you know, before you make this one zone in different parts of the field, just make sure that they're the same types of soil. You know, it might be that one soil has a little lower yield because of this problem and another soil has a little lower yield for another problem. But if you put them into the same zone, because based on yield alone, you might not be doing justice to either one. Just things like that. Right. In zone selection, then, other than yield, uh, what other factors would be top of mind? Right, yeah. Um, you know, your soil survey, your soil survey can help. But that's going to take some ground truthing as well. Just make sure the soils with similar properties and similar yield levels are, are in the same zones. Well, if you could have one message to all of your former students from the past, well, you started teaching the intro course in 2005, I think you said, so the past 15 years, if you could have them all in the room and address them and give them a message related to soil science, uh, what, what would you tell them? Don't mine your soils. Phosphorus and potassium. You know, put back what you take off, particularly with respect to phosphorus. And as soon as the soil test drops below 150 or so on your potassium as well. Put what you take off, prevent erosion, obviously, and um, just try to avoid compaction and some things like that. Just try to take, take as good care of it as possible. Thanks to Dr. Goose for being on the show. Also, a big thank you to the North Dakota Corn Council and the North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program for making this podcast series possible. Whatever your interest in soil science, I hope that sparked some curiosity about these topics. If you learned anything there or in any of these Soil Sense episodes so far, we'd sure appreciate a rating and review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. We've got a lot of great episodes coming your way this season, so please make sure you're subscribed. We'll be back next week with a very interesting aspect of soil health. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.